going to the fair on Friday. Had a good time there. It's hot. Realize I'm not used to that anymore. That hot, kind of muggy. And I ate all kinds of food there. I'm probably not going to say it right, but those hopper jays, is that how you say that? You Dutch people? A little like Dutch, Dutch what? Right, what, what she said. <laughs> and I ate a whole plate of those all by myself. And I uh, sent that down with a chaser of fried white cheddar cheese curds. <laughs> oh, those were good. <laughs> really, really good. Nice big thick slice of pizza. And I uh, didn't make it through the night too well that night. I actually woke up early in the morning and had a flu bug. And you don't want to get a flu bug immediately following the fair. You know what I'm saying? This is fair food you want to see once. So I'm not saying that it came back. I'm just saying. You know, you don't, you don't want to even tempt that stuff to return. But... Um, just in talking about the fair, we were we were there for the concert, Newsboys concert on Friday night, and we waited in line and free taking you know, the free seats, so we're up kind of high and looking out. But it, it was really cool. They did a great job. I love the Newsboys, especially love that they, that they keep proclaiming Jesus and and they keep inserting songs of worship throughout their set. And so I don't know what it is, but when when I'm leading worship, when I'm up front, I can I can typically keep it together. You know, there are some songs where you start to feel a little emotional, but you know, you've got to keep it together. When I'm sitting there worshiping and someone else is leading, it's impossible. And But I was determined. And they started singing, Blessed be your name. And you give and take away, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And my eyes just filled up with tears. And uh, But I held it together. I held it together. And a few songs later they sang, He Reigns. Once again, the eyes filled up with tears. And it still had held it together. I'll tell you when I lost it, though, was when their lead singer started quoting from Isaiah. In fact, let me read it to you. He just started reading, no music. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. He quoted some other verses, just just straight quoting without commentary, and I was just I wouldn't have been like that, you know, a decade ago. I don't think I understood the value um, of the truth. But as we sat there in the in the stands of the fairgrounds, looking out, you could see the newsboys in front of us, and then out over to the left, you could see the fair and all the lights going on, and and off in the distance there was another band playing some Fleetwood Mac tunes from the 70s, and. And as I, I saw the contrast, you know, and all these people gathered around here, hanging on every word of the Word of God. I'm reminded again that this world needs the Word of God. Desperately. We have seen in the list of all the kings, we've seen three, after David, three good kings. Four, if you count Jehoshaphat, although he waffled a bit. 
but three that, that attained to the gold standard of David. Asa, we saw Hezekiah, and we saw Josiah. And Hezekiah and Josiah, we're going to see Josiah. But those two kings are by far the best. Both of them, by the way, and I think it's interesting, in talking about Hezekiah, the Bible says that no king was like him before him, and no king would be like him after him. But then it says the same thing about Josiah, who came after Hezekiah. No king was like him before him, no king was like him after him. And I think in talking about Hezekiah, what it's, what it's inferring is that immediately after him, there wasn't going to be, you know, his son or his son's son would not be anything like him. But one man would arise who was not only like Hezekiah, but even greater than Hezekiah. And that is the king Josiah. Hezekiah, as much as he was a king of prayer, Josiah is a king of the word. He is a king of Torah. And the great thing that Hezekiah did was bring the word back to Israel. Let's begin 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adia of Bozkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house. To the carpenters and to the builders and the masons for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them, for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who, who read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it in the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the, the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Mataiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, Asaiah, went to hold up the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. They have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. 
But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and have wept before me. Truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Chapter 23. Then the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord. And all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him. And the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord. And to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. To carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the standard of truth before us. We thank you, Father, that that before all things you saw fit to begin having this written down. That you inspired the prophets and the apostles before us. That you breathed into into them the words that you would have us hear. We thank you, Father, because we in our flesh wander in every direction. We wander to the right and to the left, but Father, your word is firm and always draws us back. It is encouraging to us, Father. It uplifts us. It nourishes our souls. It gives us strength. Father, it convicts and challenges Truly your word is living and active as you declare. And we thank you for it. And Father, we pray that at the reading of your word, both this Sunday, Wednesday nights, every time we gather, whether it's two or more, Father, at every reading of your word, we ask you for tender hearts and humble minds. Tender hearts, Father, that will receive your word and your truth, even if it contradicts our thoughts. The Father, humble minds, that we might approach you and recognize that you alone have the words of life. To whom else can we go? Teach us by your word this morning, Father, and give us your spirit. And tenderize us, Lord, that we might walk more closely with you, our God, not to the right or to the left, but straight forward in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, don't you love finding something you've lost? Something you thought you'd never recover, maybe some precious uh, emotional thing, something that that meant a lot to you, and and you lost it, and you don't know where it is, but when you finally recover it, it's just, it's such a wonderful feeling. The night before my wedding to Cheryl, just clarifying, yeah, the night before my wedding, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I need the wedding ring for tomorrow. And he said, great. I said, well, can you get it for me? I don't have it. 
Well, we bought it, you know, a few months ago, and I gave it to you for safekeeping. See, at the time we bought it, I, we, Sean and I were engaged a year. And we went back and forth to Texas to school, and, and so I, I gave it to my dad. I said, look, I need you to be the safekeeper of this, of this ring. This is a sacred task I'm giving to you, Father. <laughs> so here we are, you know, 12, 13 hours before I'm, I'm supposed to be getting ready to get married, and my dad's looking at me with his blank look, because I have no idea where the wedding ring is. And I was desperate. It was a thin gold ring with little diamond chips in it, I spent all the money I had, 300 bucks, and I panicked. And it turns out it was on the upper shelf of my dad's closet all along. So one time in my life, he was wrong. I've never let him forget it. No, we, we just found that ring, and I was, I was thrilled. I was so, so relieved to have it. But have you ever found something that you needed, but you weren't even looking for it? That's what happened here in the temple. Josiah and, and the people, the leaders, the priests, they were not looking for the law. The law had been absent. In fact, most likely destroyed every copy. And they weren't looking for it at all. They were just trying to restore the temple. You see, see Josiah had it right. His focus was in the right place. His heart was, was to the Lord. But nobody knew where the law was. It seems that it was non-existent. And so Josiah sent these guys out on a routine reparation, a king's requirement of repair, and the outcome resulted in radical revival. In fact, under Josiah, Judah would have the greatest revival of its history and wouldn't last forever, but during his reign, this kingdom would revive. Young Josiah is the second youngest king in the history of either Judah or Israel, and he's completely on the right track. Now, you Bible students, you may remember his father was a wicked predecessor, Ammon. But uncharacteristically, this apple fell far from the tree, and Josiah had a different heart. A heart toward the Lord. By the age of 18... He was passionate for God. While other 18-year-olds, any present company excluded, are out looking after their own interests, looking to the future and what they might get from the world, Josiah was looking to the house of the Lord. And that's when they found it. A dusty old rolled-up scroll tucked away under some of the treasury. It's believed that the previous two kings, Manasseh and Ammon, actually attempted to eradicate Torah law from Israel to gather up and burn and destroy every scroll that was there. But they missed one. One that was tucked away. And in a sense, it reminds me of what Peter said. For there was a copy of the Bible ready to be revealed at just the right time. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In the same way the law was just sitting there waiting to be found. So our salvation is just sitting there waiting to be received, waiting to be revealed, waiting to be experienced at just the right time. Peter calls it our living hope. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning and it's what sets my bed gently on the pillow at night. The living hope. A hope revived. 
Because as many of you know, when you come to Jesus Christ, you make a great discovery. You find something maybe you didn't even know you needed. You weren't even really looking for it, but you discover something in Jesus that revives you, that ignites a new life. And it was more than Torah law which they discovered in that dark corner of the temple. Again, it was the roots of revival. And I want to take our lesson this morning from these pages, the pages of revival. To understand maybe a little bit more about what revival really involves. Revival, the word simply means to be restored to life, to be revived, revitalized, brought back alive to a, to a renewed passion in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've had several thousand years, a couple thousand years now of church history, and a couple of centuries where revival has come at different times. In the 19th and 20th century we saw numerous different revivals around the world. And the revivals are always great because God is pouring out His Spirit and reviving the hearts and the minds, not only of believers but of unbelievers, showing them something they didn't think they had lost but discovered they desperately needed. Revival. Revival can also go in the wrong direction in that we can be so excited about some kind of an experience that we miss the fact that true revival is simply a life drawn back to Jesus Christ. A life brought to our knees, a heart tender, a mind humbled before the Lord. Revival means again to be restored to life, to be quickened from a dead, dry, lifeless place to a life of passionate living. Unfortunately in the church it's equated to large scale evangelistic meetings, huge crowds and big crusades. Not that there's a problem with any of those things. But revival can happen with one person all by themselves as much as it can happen with thousands. Revival is when a heart returns to Jesus, is enlivened by Jesus Christ. You could have revival on a Sunday morning no one even really know about it. You could be the one person who has been revived to life. Maybe your life was flatlined. And Jesus calls you back to passion and to relationship and to a life of meaning and value. Josiah, interesting that he would be the king who brings revival, the king who discovers the, the word and ushers in revival because his name, Yoshia, Yoshia literally means Yahweh is my foundation or, or Yahweh heals, revives. And so we see healing and revival in Judah like never before. And this radical revival of Josiah in Judah began quietly two years earlier, before the discovery of the law, when this king was 16 years old. 2 Chronicles 33, 34 verse 3 says, In the eighth year of his reign, he would be 16 because he started at the age of eight, in the eighth year of his reign while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. 16 years old. And Josiah said, I'm going after Jesus. Well, Rick, Jesus wasn't really there. Yeah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he was following after Jesus. He was following after the Lord as a 16-year-old. And this is the thing about revival. I'll give you a few things to jot down. I had like 20 of them, and I'm just going to get through probably four this morning. About to finish up the others on Wednesday night. But the first one is simply this. Here's how you enter into revival. This is how you experience or begin a revival. It always begins by receiving a right relationship with the Lord. Receive a right relationship with the Lord. Psalm 69.32 says, The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. 
unlike any other relationship, when we step into that relationship with Jesus, even if we have stepped back from it, even if our lives have been caught up with other things, when we revive, when we re-enter that relationship with Jesus, when we repent, we return to Him, something different happens. And you know what I'm talking about, Christians. You revive. It could be as simple as sitting down in despair, frustrated over financial things, and suddenly you think about the Lord and you revive. But revival always begins by receiving a right relationship with the Lord. No one in Judah knew what was going on. But the Lord began to stir Josiah's heart. And this 16-year-old fell in love with the Lord. He followed in the footsteps of his father David. He did not turn to the right or to the left. But it was two good years before the flames of revival would begin to burn throughout all of Judah. Now the scripture, interestingly, does not declare repentance to be the first step of revival. Although repentance is definitely part of it. Relationship is the first step of revival. Relationship with the Lord. Romans 2.4 Paul said, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If not for the kindness of God that attracts me to relationship, I would have nothing to repent of. I wouldn't want to turn around. He's the one who calls me and not the other way around. And there's a subtle arrogance that can enter into our faith if we begin to think that we found God. We didn't find Him. He found us. He called us to relationship. His kindness invites us in. We see this, interestingly, in the life of Josiah's grandpa Manasseh, who was a wicked, evil king, even to the point that the Assyrians came down and took him out of power and placed him over in Babylon and left him there to rot. But the Bible tells us something happened to Manasseh. He changed. 2 Chronicles 33.12 says, When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by this entreaty. God heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. When did Manasseh know? After God showed him his goodness. It's always the goodness of the Lord that brings us to relationship with the Lord. That's where revival begins. It's not born in boardrooms. It is not contrived in committees. It is, not, it is ignited. It's ignited in the individual. John Corson writes about an evangelist, a revivalist. In the late 1800s, a man by the name of Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith was known for preaching and seeing revivals on every continent of the world. A missionary par excellence, and everywhere he went, it seemed that revival would break out among people. And finally, a group of people came to him from a very dry and lifeless area, and they came to him and they said, Reverend Smith, we desperately want to see revival in our area. It's dry, it's dead, what can we do? I love his response. Go home, close yourself in your bedroom, take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the floor. Then kneel in the circle and pray fervently for God to start a revival in the circle. (laughs) How often do we in our lives, we want to see it. We want to experience it. These people need revival. You all need it. And the Lord's saying, how about you and I start? How about the two of us get together? We want to see big things and God's saying, I just want to see your heart. Let's have revival start right there. 
So don't go looking for someone else to stir revival or ignite passion in you. You go to the Lord and ask Him to revive your heart. For many of us, the reason we might feel lifeless is we have forgotten that the love relationship is the root of our lives. That our enjoyment, our passion, our our enthusiasm and excitement draws out of not external things but an internal love relationship with the Lord. You you know the verse, Revelation 2, verse 2, where Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus. You remember what he said? I have this against you. You've done all these great things, but you have forgotten your first love. And love is the center of all this. Love is the purpose of all this. It's not excitement. It's not buzz. It's love. And if the desire for revival is to see great signs and wonders, gang, ultimately it will fail. But if the desire is rooted in a love relationship with Jesus Christ, those roots will go deep. 2 Kings 22, verse 3, watch this. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king, king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money. Verse 5, he says, Let him deliver the money into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Why? To repair the damages of the house. Second thing about revival. The first is it begins by receiving a right relationship with the Lord. The second thing, if you want to see revival, if you want to experience revival, repair the damages to the house of the Lord. Repair the damages. I said earlier that while other 18-year-olds are often focused on what the world can give them, Josiah was focused on the house of the Lord. He was about making right repairs. Had he not done so, gang, revival wouldn't have come. They wouldn't have found the word if he had just left it alone and let it be. How does that apply to revival? We meet in a barn. Are you saying we need to repair the barn? It's actually doing pretty good. You know, with the exception of a little bird poop and some hay here and there. <laughs> Repair the damages to the house of the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, You are living stones. Being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Are there breaches in the walls of this house? Is there damage in this house of the Lord? Areas in need of repair. Are there relationships that are broken or confidences torn down? Can I just ask you to do one simple thing? If you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ in this fellowship, would you please go to them in love and repair the house of the Lord? That is his great desire for us. Love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. And if there are damages in the house, if, there, if you've come to this church from another church where there was damage done, would you please go back to the people in that other fellowship and seek restoration? Because the house of the Lord gang is a whole lot bigger than this barn and this little fellowship. 1 Peter 4.17 Peter writes an interesting passage, especially to those of us who are Christians, who are saved. He says, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It is time for judgment to begin, Peter says, with the house of God, with God's household. Rather than us looking out at the sinful world and making judgment on that, Peter says, start here. 
Because oftentimes what happens in our relationships is I'm looking out and I'm talking about the sinful things out there, but I'm looking right over a relationship that's broken between myself and somebody else. Repair the damages to the house of the Lord. And some might say, well, if judgment is supposed to happen with the household of God, I thought our judgment happened at the cross. It did, eternally speaking. But there are still things that we need to judge among us. And my judgment begins right here with myself. Where do I need to be about repair? Where do I need to be about fixing the breaches and damages in the house of the Lord? Before we jump to judgment in the world, let's make right and sound judgment here and determine to love each other. Hebrews 10.24 The writer said, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The whole idea of church fellowship is to build each other up, to develop intimate relationships, to grow in our love together, so that that is the foundation of who we are. Built, of course, on the true foundation of Jesus Christ. Because Josiah's house, heart, was turned to repairing the house of the Lord, that great discovery was made. Look at verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Verse 11 says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. This was an emotional and gut-wrenching experience for Josiah. Tearing clothes was a sign of that. It was an expression being of intense grief. I'm glad we don't do it now. I couldn't afford it. (laughs) But Job, when he learned his children had all been killed in a tragic accident, he tore his clothes, Job 1.20. Reuben, the oldest of the sons of Jacob, he returned to the pit where he and his brothers had dumped Joseph. He returned there to retrieve his brother, and when he found him gone, he tore his clothes. Genesis 39.29. Jacob, his father... Upon receiving back that coat of many colors from his sons, dipped in blood, Jacob thought, my favorite son, my Joseph, he's dead, and Jacob ripped his clothes, Genesis 39, 34. Joshua, after he led the people into Israel, into the promised land, remember he went up against Jericho and it was a great victory. The next battle they went up into was against the men of Ai. And they lost. And they were driven out. And Joshua tore his clothes. Hezekiah, upon hearing the threat of Assyria, realized they were in serious shape. And in 2 Kings 19, verse 1, Hezekiah tore his clothes. And later we'll see another man do it. A man by the name of Mordecai, who after learning the Jews in Persia were sentenced to annihilation, Esther chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai tears his clothes. This is incredible grief. When was the last time the reading of the word brought us to incredible grief? I mean, just literally brought tears to our eyes. And I share what happened at the, at the fair, not to say that I, I wasn't grieving. I was just excited to hear the word of the Lord. But when was the last time someone opened up the pages of scripture and began to read and you just started weeping over the conviction of hearing the word spoken? That's what happened to Josiah. This was an incredibly emotional moment for him. And I say that to point out that godly sorrow is often a side effect of Scripture. Because Scripture gracefully illuminates areas of my life that need reviving. Areas that are dying. Areas that are dead. Or areas at least that are numb 
to feeling the things of God. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, and especially early on in the, in the history of the bridge when people would come in, and they'd sit down for the first time. They heard something about it's a teaching church or whatever. And they would sit down. And, and how many times I would see people in tears just when scripture was being read. And it's because godly sorrow brings us to that point of repentance. Josiah is sitting there. He's listening to the reading of Torah. And he would have heard this. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Josiah hadn't done it. He'd never heard that. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may fear, learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. Did you catch that? What is the description of Josiah? He is a king who did not turn to the right or to the left. And that's what the king was supposed to be. How does a king not turn from to the right or to the left? He hangs on every word of the Bible. He reads it. He writes it. He speaks it every single day. So that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom and in the midst of Israel. And that is the description back in verse 2 of Josiah. He didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. It's because he came in contact with the word. And the word washed over him. But listen, as Josiah first heard the word, he was heartbroken. Because he finally understood the suffering of Judah. He finally got it. Why is the kingdom in such bad shape? If God is our God, and he truly is the king of the universe, why are things in such disarray here? And he recognizes because we have forsaken his word. Back during the reign of Isaiah, the prophet Amos delivered this message from the Lord. Amos 8:11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And Josiah experienced this famine firsthand and it broke his heart. A side note here of the tragedy of this. Where was the book of the law found? In the house of the Lord. So often in the house of the Lord, the book of the law is there, but nobody's reading it. The Bible is sitting on a shelf or a table or even on a pulpit, but nobody's even referring to it. You want to see revival? Rediscover the word of the Lord. Rediscover the word of the Lord. John Wesley, a great 18th century preacher, was once asked this question. Why do so many people come to hear you? Wesley's response, I love this, he said, I simply get alone and ignite myself in prayer and the word, and the people come out to watch me burn. That's great. That's like what Jeremiah the prophet said, Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Why do you spend so much time in Bible study at the bridge? Because it ignites fire in us. Because if we will commit ourselves to hearing the words of the Lord, the fire will burn and people will come out to see you burn. To see you ignited. The danger of discovering or rediscovering the Word of God is it will begin to burn like a fire that you cannot hold back. I'll tell you how to hold the fire back, though. Don't read it. 
close it. Spend less time in it. Get away from it. Spend your time doing other things of religious exercise, but don't listen or read or meditate upon the Word of God. Otherwise, you might catch fire. Otherwise, you might find yourself in the midst of revival. Discovered in the house of God, saying the Word itself is often buried under piles of liturgy and stacks of ritual. Worse, in some cases, it's completely abandoned in favor of emotion-centered experience or man-centered philosophy, as if Oprah herself were the preacher in most of our churches. If the sound doctrine of the Word of God is not being preached and received, the revival is bogus. You want to know how to tell if a revival is a true revival? Look for the teaching of the Word. Is it sound? Is it biblical? Is it doctrinal? And if it is, then there's a good chance the revival you're seeing is of the Lord. But if the Word is not at the center of it, there's a real good chance the revival you're seeing is of the heart of man, or worse, a movement of the enemy attempting to deceive and get people off track. Psalm 119.25 says, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 88 of Psalm 119, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. And verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. Rediscover the word of God. So we see in Josiah someone who did receive a right relationship with the Lord. He repaired the damages to the house of the Lord. He rediscovered the word of the Lord. And now things really get going. Verse 12. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah the, the king's servant, saying... I'm glad I don't have to read that verse again. <laughs> Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so they call on Huldah the prophetess, which I think is interesting. They go to Huldah. And she gives a word from the Lord. She had a great reputation, apparently, highly esteemed as a true prophet of God. And this was in the days of Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah. But they went to hold of the prophetess. Why would they do that? Again, because she was highly esteemed. Because she spoke the true words of the Lord. And in verse 15, she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Behold... Behold, I will I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. Verse 18. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a curse, a desolation, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. When Hezekiah heard a similar prophecy, do you remember what he said? Do you remember how he responded? Hezekiah said, Okay, as long as it's not in my generation, and as long as I'm going to have peace in my days, good. I mean, bummer that it's going to happen later to the rest of the people but as long as I got a ride out of here I'm good to go Josiah is completely different 
he sent, verse 1 of 23, and gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. He went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. He stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, statutes, with all his heart and his soul, to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. He read the entire Torah. How long did that take? You think my sermons go long sometimes. He stood up in front of all the people gathered in Jerusalem and started Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and began to read until he finished out Deuteronomy. How long would it take to do that? The Torah was originally written out in scroll form. It was 50 yards long when completely unrolled. It contains the first five books of the Bible. Whenever I say Torah, that's what we're talking about, those first five. Usually written in 248 columns, three to four columns to a page. To read it straight through without a break would take an estimated seven and a half hours. That the small and the great would stand there together. The children and the adults would be there together. But this should not have been a new experience for the people of Judah. Deuteronomy 31 verse 10, Moses commanded them saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. And you know what? They hadn't done it once. Not seven years after they entered the promised land, not seven years after that, not during the life of David, Solomon, or any of the other kings. They had never once gathered the people in Jerusalem and listened to the reading of the word of the law. No wonder Judah was in such bad shape. No wonder Israel was already wiped out. They had no idea what they were missing. They hadn't heard it. They hadn't been brought up in it. God established His Word as one of the most significant roots of revival because it enlivens our hearts to grow up in the Lord. Psalm 1 verse 3 says, He who meditates on the law of the Lord will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Do you want to have a fruitful Christian life? Do you want to have a life where you can say, I am living for the Lord? Do you want to be the person when Jesus sees you, when he calls us home, that he looks into your eyes and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. I'll tell you what, you want the roots of the word. You've got to go deep into the word. If you want to bear fruit upward, you've got to send roots downward. Into the word of God. When Josiah heard the word, he tore his clothes in grief and repentance and he invites the people to join him again in verse 3 he stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord now listen to me this is not just everybody sign a sheet of paper and you'll be part of the team this isn't like a legal document this predates this whole idea of lawyers and, and notarizers the covenant was deadly serious and the people accepted it. Number four, revival, you want revival, return by covenant to the Lord. Return by covenant. Again, it's serious business. You don't make a covenant lightly. Part of the reason why 
we have so much divorce in our country today is the covenant is less important than the reception. Nobody likes divorce. Those of you who have gone through it don't like it. You know that. Interesting, last night, I don't know if you watched the Saddleback... um, Saddleback civic thing where, where both McCain and Obama were on stage with Rick Warren at Saddleback Church and he asked them questions and just same questions for both guys and it's kind of the first time I think in this campaign where you've been able to really hear what each one believes or at least you could hear what well I, no I'm not going to get into that <laughs> I was going to say I know what one person believes I'm not sure about but I won't go there um, I thought what was interesting though was that uh, Rick Warren asked the question what's your greatest moral failing how often is that asked of a presidential candidate and yet it ought to be asked every single time what is your worst moral failing McCain's answer was my first marriage and I kind of went wow I mean that that was kind of gutsy for him to say that why do so many marriages fail because we don't recognize the seriousness of the covenant both sides we are entering in to covenant Let me explain how serious this truly is, gang. When Josiah called the people back to the Lord, they entered into a covenant that would be binding. In Genesis 15, we see an example of what covenant means, of how it was done. The Lord invites Abram to cut covenant with him. It's the word berit. Berit meaning covenant or cutting, literally. The root word comes from that, or is that word cutting. And it's that word because when two parties were going to enter into covenant together, they would take a number of animals and they would cut them in half. Sacrifice them, cut them in half, and they'd lay halves on either side with basically a pathway of blood in between them. This is exactly what God invited Abram to do. You cut the animals in half, lay them on either side, there's blood in the middle, and you walk through the blood, and you meet in the middle, clasping hands, and you look each other in the eye and say, if you break this covenant, you're dead meat. You will be, I mean, that's how serious it was. Cutting covenant. And so the Lord says, Abraham, I want to enter into a covenant with you. Genesis 15. And in the old story, Abram gets ready to cut covenant. He says, okay, Lord, let's do it. Let's make a pact together. And he carves the animals, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old... By the way, you know what a heifer is? I learned this at the fair. It's different than a Hereford. A Hereford and a heifer. A heifer is, is a cow that has not given birth to a calf. So it's a virgin cow, in essence. And the Lord says, get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. All of these animals, cut them in half and prepare for the ceremony. So Abram does all this. He lays out the animals on either side. There's their pathway of blood there, but God doesn't show up. This is the Middle East. Blood on the ground, animals on either side. It's starting to get a little intense. Abram fights off buzzards, Genesis 15 tells us. As they begin to see, oh, hey, we got food. And Abram's, you know, flapping and and trying to keep them away. God doesn't show up. The indication is from when this began to, to later on when God did show up, it would be like 24 hours that Abram is there with the animals and the blood and, and, and nothing's happening. Finally, an exhausted old Abram, 85 years old, he's worn out, and the Lord causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And then, 
then the Lord shows up. Listen to this. Genesis 15:17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. By the way, all pictures of Jesus, and if you want to know that, go to the website, Genesis 15. Listen to that teaching. Because this, is, this whole thing is wrapped around the person of Jesus Christ, and it's amazing. But this smoking oven and flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Bible says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. But guess what? Abraham does not walk through Abraham doesn't even meet God halfway. He is party in this covenant, but God is the only one who walks through the path of blood. The covenant is completely one-sided. For those, side note, who would, who would say that Israel lost their chance, God made a one-sided, absolute covenant with Abraham. That the only way it could ever be violated would be if God violates his part of the covenant, because Abraham didn't have a part. He didn't walk through. The Lord did. He walks the path of blood alone. What does that have to do with Josiah? Skip ahead to chapter 23 and verse 21. Josiah and the people make this covenant together. And as we'll talk about Wednesday night, Josiah goes about tearing down the high places again, smashing all the Asher poles, getting rid of all of the idolatry there in Judah. And he gathers the people, and the king, verse 21 commanded all the people saying celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah that's amazing to me but in the 18th year of King Josiah this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem the Passover The Passover, that celebration of the blood of the Lamb. You remember they were to take the animal, the the lamb, and take its blood and put it on the doorposts, either side, and across the lintel on the top. And when the people celebrated it, it was that celebration of their salvation from the wrath of God on the night of their deliverance from Egypt 800 years earlier. And as this is going on, we see revival breaking out in Judah. Why? Why? Because when a people return to the Lord, their hearts are always drawn to the cross, more specifically to the one Paul called Christ our Passover. For Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was a temporary band-aid to the real healing that would come through Jesus Christ. Jesus took the Passover meal and explained its full breadth of meaning in Luke 22, verse 19, which tells us he took some bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. How deadly serious is the Lord about his covenant of blood? He is so deadly serious, gang, that Jesus walked the path of blood alone. We did not walk it. We didn't meet him in the middle. We didn't step just inside of the sacrifice. We were asleep when it happened, like Abraham was. He walked the path of blood alone from the Roman praetorium to the outskirts of the old city to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Why? So that we might be revived. 
resurrected to a new life. And it doesn't depend on you or me. It depends on Jesus and Jesus alone. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ literally holds us together. And having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And that is revival. That's true revival. That's eternal revival, revived to new life from now on forever. It's not some fly-by-night buzz that tickles my senses. It's hearts resurrected and lives revived by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. Gang, it is spirits ignited to passion by a God who loves so much that He walked the path of blood alone, the road of revival alone. There is so much more I want to talk about. I'm going to stop right there for now. We will cover more about revival and what Josiah did on Wednesday night. But let me just end with this, gang. The centerpiece of the revival in Judah brought about through King Josiah was the Word of God. It was foundational. It's what brought the people back to understanding the heart of the Father. To know what His desires. He didn't give us this to cast off or set aside. He gave it to us that our hearts might be continually revived. Let's pray together. Father, I am I'm so tempted to start in Genesis and just keep going. We've done this across nearly five years now, Father. And you called your people to do it in one day. To hear all the words of the book of the law. And Father, when we pause and contemplate why, we with the blessing of 4,000 years can look back and recognize, Father, that all these things pointed to one definite and ultimate conclusion, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray for all of us, I guess beginning with myself, Lord, that you will revive our hearts to the truth. Revive our hearts in Jesus Christ. Not so that we can experience something as a church fellowship, but so that we would burn as, as fire in the night so that the people around us would see and know, Jesus, that you are Lord. That it wouldn't just be words that we speak, but the very actions of our hands and our feet, our behavior, our love. Father, I pray for a revival of love in this place and throughout your body, the church. I pray that that's what we would be known for, disciples of yours, because of our love for one another. Father, we, we entrust ourselves to you, and revival to you. And we praise you for giving us life, and re-giving that life in Jesus. Father, we lift up our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen.